G'day, this is an abridged version of the episode that you can hear in full by signing up at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash subscribe. Enjoy the freebie. G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas and a special primo episode. Uh, look, this is going to be an interesting one. Uh, I went out to the uh, to the substackers and the, uh, the social media followers and I asked, uh, here's an Ask Me Anything. We're doing an Ask Me Anything, I says to them. And you, in all of your kindness and generosity, sent back some fantastic questions. So I thought, uh, let's just uh, cover a whole bunch of these questions. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Some of these questions were so exceptional that I looked at them and I thought, well, I'm just going to end up talking for uh, 30 to 40 minutes just about that one question. So what do I do about that? Huh? Got yourself in a little pickle now, don't you, Zeps? I says to myself. And then uh, I says to myself, well, hang on. We don't need to do just one uh, Ask Me Anything. Uh, We could do a, a number of them. And several of them could just address one particular question. And I could just share my thoughts about that. And then uh, I looks at the questions and I looks at them and I says to myself, I says, Zeps, stop talking to yourself like an old timey man. And I says, okay. And I says, one of them is particularly hot button. I shouldn't touch that one. And then I think, well, you know what happens whenever I think I shouldn't touch something. My little hand just can't stop going out there. And I kind of want to touch it, even if it's not in my interest to touch it. Can you guess what? this question might relate to. There's only like a handful of things that you're not allowed to talk about. Someone asked me about JK. Am I allowed to say the name or is her name Voldemort now? Is she the, is she the person who can't be named? JK, you know who I'm talking about, right? Okay. The one who can't be named. Uh, she, I had said on a podcast, I think it was with Courtney Act, the fabulous drag queen who said in passing that JK Rowling, oh, sorry, she who can't be named, uh, is transphobe. And I sort of said, well, is she? I mean, I don't know. We say that she is. I'm not sure. And then um, this week on The Project, which is a nightly chat show in Australia, they did a whole piece about JK Rowling being an anti-trans bigot. And again, I was like, are we all just accepting that now? Like, is that just the journalistic journalistic consensus? Because I'm not, like, I'm not following her closely. I don't know the woman. Uh, it's clear that she seems unusually interested in this subject, shall we say. But the only formal way in which she said anything about this, to my knowledge, is when she wrote an essay about it. And that essay is being was taken to be just prima facie evidence of her anti-trans bigotry. So I want to go back to that essay, and I want us to read that essay. Like, this is the worst book club that you've ever been to, but also the most dangerous one, right? It's like, why would we go and choose the most inflammatory and toxic text that is going to get Josh cancelled and then literally uh, read it on his podcast? Well, because I can't stop touching hot frying pans. That's why, especially if the frying pans are the most reasonable thing uh, to use for the job. You know, I'm going to use the best frying pan, even if it's going to burn my fucking hand off. Uh, so anywho, I, th- I want to talk about this also because it's, it's world pride starting this week, next week, whenever you hear this. And, uh, Sydney is going to go absolutely crazy and bananas putting on a massive, fabulous show for like three weeks. World Pride is this rotating event. It happens every few years. Different cities have it. It's the first time it's ever been on in the Southern Hemisphere. Sydney is already home to the world's largest gay and lesbian festival, the Mardi Gras, which takes place every February. Now the 
World Pride is going to coincide with Mardi Gras. The pandemic's over. People in the Northern Hemisphere are thinking about traveling again. It's going to be a massive Lollapalooza. And needless to say, all of the imagery around World Pride, and I work for the official broadcaster of the world of World Pride. The ABC is the official broadcaster. So rah, rah, rah. Yay, yay, yay. Rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. All the official imagery, needless to say, is oiled up young hot guys with sequins and feather boas and so on. And certain members of the LGBTQIA plus community, that community where all of us gather together and have scones and tea every Saturday, uh, that community, some certain members feel somewhat alienated by that particular portrayal of gayness. They find it limiting. They feel like it's, at this point, it's actually not liberating to tell young people who might be confused about their sexuality that they get to choose between either being a straight masculine acting person or they can be a massive bottom and just straddle a an enormous inflatable penis and drive down Oxford Street on it while wearing arseless chaps all lubed up with feather boas in their hair. Like is that is that binary helping in 2023 it probably it well it definitely helped i think in 1969 it probably helped in 1975 to be like we're here we're queer we're gonna shock you but uh at some point it became more useful to say we're here we're queer and we just want to blend into the background and get along we want all the same things you do we want to not be discriminated against at work we want to be able to get the same access to housing without being discriminated against by landlords or mortgage lenders we want to be able to get married we want to be able to have families we want to be able to visit our loved ones when they're dying in hospital without having to pretend that we're just their friends we want to have the same inheritance rights like it was quite a pragmatic and prosaic and mundane human rights request that yielded the greatest civil rights triumph probably in the history of the world, which is the change in attitudes towards gay people in the past generation. Now, how much does that have in common with the current plight of trans people in the, and let me just clarify, I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone here. I'm not speaking on behalf of trans people, but I'm not even speaking on behalf of gay people. And I'm certainly not speaking on behalf of the ABC or World Pride. I'm speaking on behalf of Josh Zepps. Is my damn show, and I'll touch as many frying pans as I want. So this idea of there being a community, an LGBTQIA plus community, how much do I have in common with a trans woman of color from a poor background? Do I have more in common with her than I do with a privileged straight white male who has the same interests as me and grew up in the same neighborhood as me? So am I in the straight white male community or am I in a bunch of communities that are overlapping? I mean, I understand that the LGBTQIA plus community is a constellation of different communities that are all stitched together. No one's so naive as to argue that the experience is the same for everybody in that quote unquote community. But I'm not even sure that there's an, I mean, what is the commonality? The commonality is simply that we've all been through some experience of coming out, right? Well, Pardon the French, but dudes who like fat chicks have been through some experience of coming out in the sense that they have had to explain an unfashionable preference to their friends on the fourth or fifth round. I mean, Asian girls who really who are really into black dudes and only date black dudes have had to have some kind of a reckoning with coming out. 
I mean, the experience of dealing with internalized shame and trying to figure out how you live as a member of someone who doesn't conform with the mainstream image of everybody of that is being idolized by wider culture is an experience that is shared by men who have male pattern baldness at an early age. Are they a member of a community? Is there a male pattern baldness community? Is there a people who sunburn eat too easily community? These are people who all share some kind of a traumatizing experience in their formative years. I mean, to some extent, they are a community, so I'm not poo-pooing the idea that there is some commonality that may be relevant when we're talking about, uh, you know, people who have what used to be regarded as deviant sexualities or genders. I'm just saying that for people to be speaking on behalf of a group of people so diverse is problematic when it serves to constrain and narrow the wider the wider culture's understanding of what that community is. Basically, trans women of color, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be a trans woman of color. I don't know what it's like to be an asexual. I have no idea what it's like to be intersex. And yet the sequined, oiled up images of world pride are supposed to be a proxy for all of those experiences. They're the umbrella. They're like the avatar. <laughs> They're the, the icon, right? So someone in the Ask Me Anything, in my list of Ask Me Anything questions, has asked the question, do you still think JKR isn't a transphobe? This is from JJJC on Twitter. Hey, John, whoever you are. Do you still think JKR isn't a transphobe? There is a group of human beings who exist and who have existed everywhere and always who feel inside their deepest, deepest core of their being that they were born into the wrong sex and that they actually are the other sex. We see expressions of this phenomenon in so many different societies, in so many different times and places, that this is clearly a thing. It's not made up. It's a real thing. Trans people exist. Transgenderism is real. People come out of the oven, it seems, to come out of the womb just with an intrinsic sense that they're in the wrong sex body. It's a funny thing, but it's true in just the same way that some people seem to come out of the womb or at least some, you know, some experience shortly thereafter enables them to say once they reach puberty, I am attracted to members of the same sex, heaps more than members of the opposite sex, or I'm equally attracted to both. So what do we do about this fact of transgenderism? I mean, if you are someone who from the age of two or three has been persistently insisting that you're in the wrong body, then it seems perfectly obvious to me and I think to most people who are currently being accused of being anti-trans that, of course, that person needs to transition. That child needs to socially and culturally transition. And when it's safe to do so, if that insistent, persistent transgenderism is still exhibited, then you do everything that the medical establishment can and that that child wants to do to have that child conform to the the gender and the sex that they're claiming they are. But what we're talking about these days is a much larger cohort of people than that. What we're talking about these days is also a cohort of people where disproportionately, for example, adolescent females who are on the autism spectrum are claiming that 
They are not females. And the status quo assumption is that you you have the blood of trans children on your hands if you so much as inquire about what else is going on in their lives or in their mental health that may be contributing to that claim. We have in most countries in the West now, although it's being pulled back on in the more progressive European countries like Nordic and Scandinavian countries, but still in the majority of the UK and US and Australia, we have a model of, of gender affirming care which is supposed to take as a given any gender claims that people show up to a doctor's office with or a gender clinic with. I have interviewed on my ABC show uh, the head of the psychiatrist's body in Australia who has some concerns about the inability of therapists to probe into what else is going on in the lives of adolescents who claim to be transgender. And sometimes these are not people who are claiming to be the opposite sex. They might just be saying that they're gender non-binary or gender queer. And I can completely appreciate the sort of do no harm argument of saying, well, look, if you're 12 and you want to start dressing and you're a female and you want to start dressing as a male and going by a male name, I mean, go for it. Good on you. Like, uh, you know, until the point comes at which we're medically intervening, then culturally speaking, screw around with gender all you want. I mean, I'm a big proponent of screwing around with sexuality. I don't really believe in gayness as a thing. I think it's a useful uh, con- cultural construction that we've developed to, to serve good egalitarian ends, and I think it's sort of outlived its purpose. And now, you know, gayness doesn't make a huge amount of sense biologically. I mean, clearly there are people at one end of the spectrum who, who definitionally, ontologically, it's convenient to call gay. But where else in bio, in biology do we see sort of on and off switches like that? We don't tend to see them, and biology tends to work in greys and tends to work in sliding scales. So, you know, I, I think it's it's likely that that sexuality is some kind of a sliding scale, and it's it's clear to me that gender is some kind of a sliding scale where there are very very masculine men and there are quite masculine women, and then there are quite effeminate men and very effeminate women and there is some overlap and it's not a perfect one-to-one ratio between uh, biological sex and gender self-expression what you feel inside um but i think it's important for us to cleave off psychologically in our brains and just like ontologically in our thinking about how we divide things up in the world between uh, transgender people who have had this persistent and insistent uh, sense of being in the wrong body and who are miserable and potentially even suicidal if they don't find some expression of that inner uh, motivation and then various uh, phenomena that may be associated with a, a kind of a playful attitude towards gender a screwing around with um with sort of gender cliches a, a rejection of stuffy gender binaries people who feel like they're misfits i mean this is me in many respects as well not with regard to gender but with regard to sexuality and many of my friends are gender non-binary people i mean some of them are actually you know trans trans and then others are what i would call trans in quotation marks in the sense that what they're really up to and that's not to demean their their gender self-expression but it's just to distinguish between them and the people who have had this persistent insistent uh kind of claim that they're in the wrong body since a very early age i'm talking about a cohort of people who are quote-unquote trans in the sense that they love fucking around with gender performativity right it's a it's an almost drag queen adjacent desire to i'll have my hairy chest and i'll also wear a dress or I'll be a biological female, but I'm going to wear men's suits and I'm going to do my hair like a 1920s Marlena Dietrich and I'm going to like smoke cigarettes with a cigarette holder or something and I'm, not, I'm going to go by a they-them pronoun or even a he-him pronoun because I like kind of upsetting the apple cart and I like 
proving to old fuddy duddies that things are more complicated than their their smug self-satisfied uh, norms would suggest and when we're talking about that latter group of people i do think that you have to start asking yourself to what extent should the formal institutions of the medical establishment intervene in instances that could be be expressions of that sort of playfulness right so again the disproportionate uh the overabundance of people of females on the autism spectrum especially lesbian females on the aut- autism spectrum lesbian females <laughs> there's the tort- i win tautology of the week on that one um lesbians on the autism spectrum uh, at being overrepresented in uh this is in uk studies in people in trans men adolescent trans men right so here's a thought experiment for you imagine being an awkward socially awkward highly intelligent girl on the spectrum struggling to conform with conventional sexist ideas about femininity that you've absorbed from wider culture and from your peers let's say you're 10 years old and you feel like an outcast and you're a bit teased at school and you're not one of the cool girls you also are starting to have crushes on other girls which just adds insult to injury because you don't want to be a hairy-legged dyke right so you've got this internalized homophobia against your own lesbian leanings you've got this internalized sexism towards your inadequacy as a female when you're held up against the sexist standards of our patriarchal culture and so you've got a couple of choices here don't you you can either own all of that in all of its messy complexity or you can flip a switch and announce that you're actually the coolest minority around right now that all of your awkwardness and your social inadequacies and your autism spectrum disorder and your lesbianism are not you know fractured evidence of your brokenness as you had previously interpreted them to be and as the bullies had claimed probably not in so many words they don't tend to talk that way in the schoolyard perhaps i'm a little bit highfalutin for them but you know what i mean rather you are actually the coolest person in school because you're a trans dude i mean does that explain every single 10-year-old girl who has announced that she's a trans boy? No. But does it explain none of them? Because that's the claim that most people want us to believe. That the explanation that I just gave explains none of the cases. Because that's the, what you'd have to believe to believe that we should never interrogate what's going on in the lives of adolescents and ask about how else they're doing, because that would be gender non-affirming care. We would have the blood of trans children on our hands if we were to do so. We have to affirm the claim, the gender claim of all people and put them on, get them into a system, onto a conveyor belt, so to speak, off which they will have to proactively jump if they don't want to end up on on puberty blockers, hormone blockers, and ultimately in surgery. If that binary doesn't bother you, then either you're not being honest or you're not thinking straight. 
These are complicated issues. So as we embark on the fabulousness of World Pride, I just want to carve out a space for us to be extremely and enthusiastically supportive of everybody's vision of what will make their life as fulfilled as possible, whatever gender expression or sexuality expression that entails. And also, not so stupid and cowardly that we feel like we have to speak inside tribal boxes and produce segments like the project did because we're all so fucking enlightened, we ref- we're going to refuse to see what obvious common sense would tell us, which is that there are different categories of experience in the trans community and to give them all the credence that we give to the quote-unquote true transgender experience, the old-fashioned, old-school, fundamentally biological experience, to to take that kernel of truth that we have to be just and fair and compassionate to transgender people and then explode that kernel of truth and smear it all over the experiences of every single young person who in this culture has been trained from a young age to think about gender as a spectrum and to disbelieve in biological sex. And for all of those claims to then essentially be accorded the umbrella right of the LGBTQIA plus movement and to make this a human rights issue such that, you know, to ask questions about whether we should be teaching young people that there's no such thing as biological sex is the same as to defend gay conversion therapy or the illegality of gayness or to have opposed gay marriage. Like, I just think we have to do better than that. We have to be more nuanced than that. Not just, I mean, for whom? For why? Why do we have to? For the for the people themselves who are going through these experiences. It doesn't serve the 10-year-old girl to not give her the care that she needs and to simply trust her intuitions that she's absorbed from her peers and her culture on questions this profound. <clears throat> I'll also just mention another elephant in the room in world pride and in all expressions of pride about this community, which is that there is a conflict between gayness and transness that we don't talk about. There's an obvious conflict between lesbianism and the trans community. Lesbians and feminists have fought for a very long time to create spaces for themselves where they don't have to deal with dudes with dicks. Now, some people with dicks are no longer dudes. Some people with dicks are in that class of people who I was talking about, who since the age of two have felt like females and we should be compassionate towards them. But the fact that we need to be compassionate towards them does not necessarily require us to believe that every adult male with a dick who claims to be a female with a dick should have the right to use women's only spaces like restrooms and bathrooms and changing rooms and whatever and prisons. But you know, you don't have to be one of a crazy trans exclusionary radical feminist who thinks that all trans women are rapists or something to nonetheless notice that there have been cases of rape in women's prisons, this is especially well documented in the UK, where 
females with penises who were born biologically male, who are in women's prisons, have raped other women. This is not so bad as to be an epidemic. I don't want to be hysterical about it. I'm just using it as a way of noting that if you're a feminist, that probably stinks, right? You spend thousands of years fighting for equality and for safe spaces away from, let's not even call them men because they're not men at this point, but away from the threat of biological manhood, to put it tactfully. I'm talking about dicks. And you've tried to scramble away from that. And now you're being told that actually the cohort of people who you thought were women, that's not true. There are also some people who are biologically male who are in that cohort as well. <clears throat> that I can understand the, the objection of certain feminists. I mean, you know, feminists like Jermaine Greer who say there's something special about womanhood that is not quite expressed through growing up as a boy. There's something unique about the experience of growing up as a girl in a, in a sexist society, that that, that, is fun, that is fundamental to womanhood. If you grow up as a boy and you go through puberty as a boy, you're not quite the same. You might still be a woman, a trans woman, but you're not identical. There's also this question of whether or not the whole idea of being attracted, of being gay, being attracted to members of the same sex makes any sense in a world in which biological sex is non non-existent and is just a spectrum. I mean, the whole point of being gay is not that you are attracted to the gay, the male, let's talk about males here for a, for a moment, it's not that you're attracted to the male gender, it's that you're attracted to the male sex, by which I mean... It's not that you're attracted to anyone who proclaims to feel like they're a male inside, even if they have boobs and a vagina. It's that you're attracted to the male biology. Like you are attracted to male faces, you're attracted to male chests, and you're attracted to male genitals. It's, so if the claim on the trans side is that all of that is just window dressing and that true gender is embedded somewhere inside you and true gender is actually just a, a declaration that one makes, then much of the, and I don't even want to say the trans community because the reality is that most of my trans friends roll their eyes at all of this ideological nonsense as much as I do. So it's people who are generally speaking on behalf of the trans community and journalists and activists and politicians who are too cowardly to stand up to this kind of university-educated, very white sort of woke vanguard of ideology. Um, so one of the claims that is made there, not by the trans community, but by this you know, woke community, is that it's somehow transphobic if you don't want to sleep with a trans person who has the opposite pink bits than you're attracted to. That a gay male who doesn't want to sleep with a trans man who has a vagina is a, is a transphobe and that a lesbian who doesn't want to sleep with a woman with a penis is a transphobe. I mean, maybe you're not making the battle very easy to win if you're insisting on erasing essentially homosexuality as a category. And what then happens to LGBTQIA plus 
if the L and the G are basically illegitimate because of the T. This is all tricky stuff. And I do wish, you know, I'd like to be optimistic that at an occasion like World Pride, we're going to have these sorts of conversations. There's a three-day event, a human rights conference, which is going to be a, a big gab fest with lots of interesting people having panel discussions and so on. Do you think that you will hear there in any of the three days anything like what you've heard in the past 20 minutes here? And do you think the stuff that will be said there will be more honest, more cutting, more relevant than this drivel? Or is it likely to be people mouthing the same things that they know that you're supposed to say about how wonderful this community is and how much more we have to do and how, you know, we're all brothers and sisters in this struggle against homophobia and injustice and that BIPOC and people of colour are, you know, central to this and we're celebrating our diversity? There'll be none of it. Which brings me to J.K. Rowling. The question was, do I still think J.K. R. isn't a transphobe? She spends way too much time on this issue. (laughs) You will notice that I don't. I spend about as much time on this issue as I think it deserves in the broader context of how much is going on in the world, which is it should probably occupy maybe like, three to five percent of all of our consciousness because it's an important question for women's rights and for feminism and for trans rights and for queer rights and for the existence of the community. People who spend 90% of their output on this issue, I just think there's something suspect about. But what I think that is, is Twitter brain. There is a derangement that comes from the algorithm that drives people to more and more unseemly, bitter, and extreme expressions of what were previously reasonable beliefs. And I fear that J.K. Rowling has gone down that path. I don't, I haven't looked closely at her Twitter feed, but just because I still follow her for some reason from the past, I occasionally see her tweets. And my, oh my, there's nothing wrong with them, I don't think. I've never seen anything that's highly objectionable. But if you're that focused on this issue, then yeah, I think you've got your priorities out of whack. So I think she's not doing herself any favours. And...